Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you did not leave us alone uh, in our sin and um, in our misery and in our fallen state, but you, you sent your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Christ, for coming willingly. We thank you for your obedience in life, even unto the point of death, for your offering of yourself in our place that we might be uh, reconciled back to our God, our maker. We thank you, Lord Christ, that um, you, you gave us the Holy Spirit, having been risen from the dead and ascended to the Father, you sent the Spirit to us that we might have the comfort and confidence of your presence with us always. And we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would make yourself known to us, make the Son known to us and the Father known to us, that we might worship in spirit and in truth, and that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would be glorified by our worship. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Oh, this morning is Trinity Sunday, right? a day we set aside to ponder the mystery of God's nature and identity as three persons in one God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A succinct description of this necessary orthodox belief about God is articulated for us in the Athanasian Creed. The Catholic faith is this, the Creed writes, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. In other words, within God, there's a, a unity amidst diversity. There are three distinct, unconfused persons who each and together are truly and fully God. There are not three gods. There is only one God, but within that one God are three persons. As we venture into the doctrine of the Trinity, I am comforted by people of far greater intellect than I. The great John Wesley once said, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man and I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. The Scottish theologian and pastor from the 19th century, Dr. George Smeaton, once wrote, the doctrine of the Trinity is not so much a point among many as the very essence and compendium of Christianity itself. It not only presents a lofty and sublime subject, subject of contemplation to the intellect, but furnishes repose and peace to the heart and conscience. To explain this mystery is not our province, however. All true theologians have universally accepted it as their highest function simply to conserve the mystery. Call me a true theologian then, because it's my very intention this morning to conserve the mystery. I cannot explain the triune God to you in a way that will make you able to understand him. That's my fault, not yours. But to be honest, I'm not sure that 
understanding, explaining God as what we as finite creatures are called to do in the first place. We're called to know God, which necessarily involves knowing something about God. But knowing is far different from understanding. J.I. Packer spends the first part of his seminal work, Knowing God, drawing distinctions between knowing God and knowing about or, or explaining God, right? He's not, nor am I, advocating for an anti-intellectual position, the kind which Mark Knoll describes in the, the Scandal of the Evangelical Mind when he says that the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. J.I. Packer believes, and so do I, very much that we need to seek to know about God. But that knowing about God is not the same as knowing God, and the two are easily conflated. He writes, interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes is not at all the same thing as knowing him. We may know as much as God about about God as John Calvin knew. Indeed, if we study his works diligently, sooner or later we shall. And yet, all the time we may hardly know God at all. He goes on to point out that John Owen and John Calvin knew more theology than John Bunyan or Billy Bray, but who would deny that the latter pair knew their God every bit as well as the former? Knowing God is, is, is relational, seeks a person and not just facts about him. Knowing is, is partial and it's, it's progressive, it unfolds with time. If you understand something, you can explain it. Because you can explain it, you may even fool yourself into thinking that you possess a certain mastery over it. This is why we're so uncomfortable with uncertainty and unresolved questions. It makes us feel out of control. We're not able to fully understand or explain God. Does not God himself inform humanity in Isaiah 55 that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We cannot understand God's behavior, let alone his nature. And yet the comfort is that we do not have to be able to explain God in order to fulfill what God requires of us. Be still, he says, and know that I am God. He demands that we know him and be known by him. He calls us to relationship and to faith. We're called to humble submission and love for a God that our finite minds cannot comprehend, but who has nevertheless made himself known to us in ways that are sufficient for our salvation. From the beginning of God's special revelation to us in Scripture, God has presented himself to us as triune. In the first five verses of Genesis 1, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are present as collaborators in the creative act. The opening chapters of Genesis are not scientific textbooks. Their, their purpose is not to tell us how creation happened, but to offer an explanation of who created, what was created, why it all went so wrong. In these foundational narratives, we learn it was God who created all things from the celestial bo bodies down to the beetles burrowing beneath the ground. And this God who created all things is presented to us, albeit in a cloaked fashion, as triune from the opening verses of the Bible. The first three verses read, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. 
while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be lights. And there was lights. Here we have God the Father, whom we are introduced to in the middle of his creative activity. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, there he is, the Father. We also have God, the Holy Spirit, who, whom the NRSV refers to as the wind of God in, in verse 2. Your translation might have the Spirit of God, but the variations in translation just demonstrate the lexical range of the Hebrew word here. You might translate that word as, as wind or spirit or even breath. This is the picture of the Holy Spirit who hovering over, who's hovering over the waters like a soaring eagle as God begins to call things into being just as he hovered over the apostles in the form of a flame at Pentecost, and just as he hovered over Jesus, the son, at his baptism in the form of a dove. There he is, the Spirit. Then, of course, we have the word of God, Jesus Christ, the son. We know this is Jesus because at the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus is introduced to us as the word which is God and was with God in the beginning but in the incarnation took on flesh and became a human being like us. He is the word that God the Father spoke when he created, the one through whom all things came into being, as John 1 explains. There at the beginning of the world, you had Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinctly involved and yet sharing in the creative process of the one and only God. They were united in their purpose, and effective in the execution of it. From the beginning, God is presented to us as triune. If you are going to worship the God of the Bible, then this is the God with whom you must deal and to whom you must submit. Admittedly, the the word Trinity is not present in the Bible, but the reality of one God consisting in three persons who are distinct and yet each truly God is presented in various ways throughout Scripture. The Westminster Larger Catechism, which is just a, a, a way of, of teaching theology in a question and answer format, explains how we can arrive at the belief that the Son and the Holy Spirit are just as much God as the Father is. Question 11 asks, how doth it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? The answer is the scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father, ascribing unto them such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper to God only. What Westminster is saying is that throughout Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are called names and act in ways that are fitting only for God, and that each of them receive worship that is only appropriate for God to receive. The word Trinity is not there, and yet each person of the Trinity is presented to us as God. And Scripture is also extremely clear that there are not three gods, but one. One of the most central prayers in the Bible is called the Shema. It's recorded in in Deuteronomy 6. It begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Indeed, it was this insistence on on monotheism, that, that, that God is one, the only God, that got Christians in such trouble with the Greco Roman society surrounding them in the first three centuries. Larry Hurtado, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, 
explains that in the Roman world, there was a, a virtual cafeteria of Roman era deities from the many nations. And as in a cafeteria, you did not have to restrict yourself to any one or any number of the gods. All deities were deemed worthy of reverence. And individual pagans of that time did not feel it obligatory to reverence each and every deity, but in principle, all gods were entitled to be reverenced. And out of that religious environment came the Christians who insisted that worship of any God but the one triune God of the Bible was idolatry. They refused to worship other gods any longer. And as Larry Hurtado points out, this total withdrawal from the, the worship of, of many deities was a move without precedent. And it would have seemed inexplicable and deeply worrying to the general populace. It would have seemed to the general public a kind of religious and social apostasy an antisocial stance. If they believed in three gods, then they certainly would have never taken such a stance. As it was, there was great cost for their belief and practice of worshiping a single god. But the Christians were willing to pay it because they believed in one true God, present to us in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's this same God whom we worship still today. The triune God is our creator, together bringing all things into existence in the beginning. The triune God is also our savior, conspiring together to redeem us after things fell apart when we rebelled against God and fell into sin, misery, and death. The Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle once wrote, it was the whole Trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. We are a people in need of salvation. I don't know if you watched the, the first installment of the January 6th commission's report hearing that, that took place this, this past Thursday, but during that hearing, they, they played a almost 10 minute video of never before seen footage of the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. And watching it, I found myself just weeping, just crying. It was so sad to me to watch people deceived, full of such anger. I felt sorry for them. I felt sorry for our country. I felt sorry for humanity. And I, I felt convicted in that moment of my own ability to get angry and to, to scoff at things I generically call crazy or insane or ridiculous in order to puff myself up. Clearly we are a people. I am a person in need of salvation. Recently, a, a white man drove more than 200 miles with the sole intention of murdering black men and women in a Buffalo supermarket while they were merely grocery shopping. Clearly we are a people in need of salvation. Of course, a young man murdered 19 students and two teachers in a Uvalde, Texas school while the police hung out in the hallway for more than an hour waiting for more equipment with which to protect themselves. Clearly, we are a people in need of salvation. And if we want to bring it closer to home, the evangelical church has for years provided cover, turned a blind eye to countless pastors who were credibly accused of sexual misconduct, abuse of power, plagiarism, extortion. And we've allowed this to happen because our values are so distorted that we value numerical growth over sanctification. We value power over humility 
And these men were delivering the goods we desired. They were making a name for us. And so we looked the other way. Clearly, we're a people in need of salvation. The triune God sees us in this miserable state. He has not forgotten us. He's full of mercy and love. Already, he's begun to make things new. But the redemption of humanity and creation is an ongoing work that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all committed to finishing. J.I. Packer writes that the work of salvation is one in which all three act together. The Father purposing redemption, the Son securing it, and the Spirit applying it. In John 16, our, our New Testament passage this morning, we hear Jesus explaining that each member of the triune God plays a role in the ongoing work of, of redemption. He's explaining to his disciples that, that he's, he's going to go to the Father. He's ascending to the Father in heaven, but that he'll send the Holy Spirit so that they're not left without comfort or confidence in this world. In verses 8 through 11, Jesus describes the work of the Holy Spirit in this redemption project. He says, and when he, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, he'll, he'll prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. The Holy Spirit will help us to see the fullness of our redemption that the Father purposed for us, the Son secured for us. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, the need of a Savior. He helps us to see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, is humanity's only hope. We needed a perfect human being who would be willing to represent us in his obedience and death, and also elevate and restore us in his resurrection and ascension. The Son of God is that human being, sent by the Father so that through him we might have hope. Through faith in Jesus, we die to our old selves. We were dead in sin, unable to please God, but his obedience unto death becomes ours, and his righteousness becomes ours as well. When Jesus rose, we rose with him. We died and rose through faith in the middle of our lives so that we might live our remainder in the presence and love of God our Father. Just as Jesus now stands righteous before the throne of the Father, so we too stand in him, a pardoned people with nothing to fear. Our judgment has taken place. In Jesus, we are forgiven. And the Holy Spirit will point the world to Jesus as evidence that the Father has accomplished victory over our adversary, the devil, the moment he raised him from the dead. The problems of this world are grave and serious. The church has much work to do. But we fight against a defeated enemy who has lost the war and can only hope for minor victories while the triune God advances in his work of redemption. There will be sorrow in this life and in this world. But the triune God has conspired together to overcome the world. Through the work of salvation, he is recreating again. The Spirit hovers over the chaos of our communities and our own hearts and our own minds and bodies. And out of the chaos, the Father is fashioning us in the likeness of His Son. 
The triune God is making all things new. We may not be able to explain him fully, but he does not ask for an explanation of himself. Instead, he asks for belief, for trust, as, because he seeks your good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.